to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. Hey everyone, so today I got some wonderful news to share with you before I start today's episode. Um, a few of you might already know this, but I got a teaching opportunity at Zuhai. It's a two-year professor gig, and I'll be teaching new media art. Most people don't seem to know where Zuhai is, which is understandable, as I myself did not know where it was when I saw the job posting. But Zuhai is located somewhere between Macau, Hong Kong, and Shenzhen. It's about an hour away from all three of those cities. And there's even a bullet train that connects Zuhai to Guangzhou. And you can get there in under two hours, maybe an hour 30. So I'll be kind of all over southern eastern China. Zuhai's on the coast, so... Hopefully we'll get to eat a lot of good seafood there and make a few trips to the beach, but I have no idea what to expect there, to be honest. Um, I've been told it's a very, very small city, and so actually once this podcast is released, I'll probably be running around and in the middle of flying over to Zuhai, so next time you hear my voice, it will be in China. In regards to the podcast, don't worry, as I'll still be releasing episodes as I got a whole backlog of interviews that need to be edited and released. And so I've got about maybe half a year's worth of episodes to release as I figure out how I want this podcast to proceed and exist within the context of China, which has its own sets of complications and issues, as I'm sure you're aware of. So I'll keep you updated about that. But for today's show, I got the pleasure of interviewing the wonderful Vanessa Vu. Vanessa is a journalist from Sight Online, and I first heard of Vanessa through Nin Yamamoto Masan. I had previously interviewed Nin, and Nin seems to be connecting me to all sorts of wonderful and cool people in Berlin. So I got to thank her for that, and I'll post our interview in the show notes below. But shortly after that, I got to meet Vanessa at a Asian-German cultural event. Um, even though I, we said hi and we talked a bit, it still took me quite a while to schedule an interview as Vanessa is such a busy person. But I'm glad I was able to finally connect right before I left Berlin. For this interview, I got to visit Vanessa in her office at Zeit Online. And we used the fancy sound booth with a bunch of fancy mics. So I'm curious if you can hear the sound difference as we talk. In addition to her journalist work, Vanessa hosts a podcast, Rice and Shine, with their co-host, Mean Too, and they talk specifically about Asian-German issues, though I have to admit I have not been able to listen to the podcast in all its entirety because Vanessa and Mean Too speak in very, very fast German, and my German just isn't that good. But this privileging of the English language certainly isn't lost on me as we are speaking in English which is my native mother tongue and not Vanessa's. And so we talk about this briefly in our conversation. We also talk about Vanessa growing up in Southern Germany, cultural appropriation, and yellow facing 
in both the broader context of Germany and also more specifically a recent German play that directly uses yellow facing, but in spite of that, still won a lot of critical acclaim and even won an award this past spring. And that award was hosted in Berlin. And we talk about kind of the reaction from the Asian German community and sort of all the change and activism that happened after that. I had a lot of fun talking with Vanessa and I hope you do as well. And so let's get on with it. Volume, I, uh, it's not going to get any louder. <laughs> you won't get sudden bouts of excitement? No. <laughs> Mintu is responsible for that part. <laughs> Your mentor? Huh? No, Mintu. A oh, Mintu. Yeah. My just, podcast just partner. This off. I should say podcast wife or something because I feel like doing a podcast together like really feels like we're an old married couple. Well, sometimes that's easier than having a real one, right? <laughs> I'm going to have a real one soon. Yeah? Are you are you about to get married? Yeah, um, actually uh, end of August. Oh, shit. Yeah. Congratulations. It's getting very serious. No, they're not getting serious. They're just as they are always, but we've been together for almost 11 years now and thought, why don't make it legal? Like, Is this just for get taxes? All the legal benefits. Or, yeah, is it tax purposes? Also, but um, I think if you if one is sick or just anything happens mm. with family, kids, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, so right now I'm at actually Zeit Online. Yeah. Is that the to- is 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 it Zeit Online or is it just Zeit? Zeit Online. Zeit Online. It's very different from the Zeit, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm with Vanessa Vu, and Vanessa is a journalist at Zeit Online. And I met Vanessa through, I guess, DAM or Korean one of those events, which is uh, they're both Asian German or just Asian diaspora groups that are in Berlin. Yeah, I think so. I think. And then, I think I met you at an event that was um, organized by Korean Yeah, although Nin, Nin Yamamoto told me about you before. Yes. And so I was like, I think I was trying to contact you. And then you're like, I'll be at this event, so I went. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I remember. <laughs> yeah, I was. I'm. I'm told I'm very persistent. <laughs> That's good. You have to be in media in this cruel media world. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, and Vanessa, she does a lot of really interesting work dealing with. I'm not sure how you want to describe it, but um, racism, nationalism, identity within. Uh, Germany and Berlin, yes. at least when I was looking through your article specifically, it seemed like those were a lot of the topics that you were dealing with. Yes, they um, are. And then the other thing that I wanted to talk about, which we'll get to later, is Vanessa also has a podcast called Rice and Shine that she hosts with Me Too. Mm-hmm. My too? Me Too. Mintu. Mintu, who I don't know as well, so um, nothing to... Nothing against her for not interviewing She, she her. doesn't live in Berlin, so that's a fair excuse, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I want to talk about that. And then also eventually we'll get into this particular play called Atlas that a lot of the Asian community in Berlin, I guess, looked at with, um, how would you describe it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess. Frustration. It, yeah, frustration. Caused a lot yeah. of frustration online. And uh, yeah, it's sort of, um, it was for me, at least as an American looking on, it was interesting to see that similar things are happening in, you know, Berlin, Germany, that are topics that you don't really think about, especially as American. Hmm. Yeah. 
So again, thank you for being here, Vanessa. Yeah, thanks for inviting. Very yeah. looking forward to this episode. Yeah. And your questions. My questions. <laughs> yeah, I feel a little nervous because you're like a professional interviewer. <laughs> I'm a journalist. Let's put it that way. But I write, so I don't speak into the microphone very often, except for my podcast. So um, I can do uh, tons of mistakes and nobody will ever know because uh, in Germany we transcribe interviews differently than um, everywhere else. What do you mean? Like if I record an interview and then I would transcribe it to written language, but then I would shorten and change it and just make it more smooth and then let it let it be authorized. And in the UK and the US, people don't do this. So when you said a sentence in a very, let's say, difficult way, people would still leave it that way. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure that exists outside of journalism no. in the US, though. Because <laughs> I feel like I'm, I know, at least in art, I've had mentors say, like, be careful about interviews because interviewers will always, you know, twist your words to fit their needs. Oh, and they do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we do, but we let it author. We just give it them to the interviewees, mm. so they can authorize it. Yeah, I don't think that always happens in the U.S. And no, because there's no rule. Yeah. Yeah, and then with clickbait, I think that's <laughs> becoming more prominent. Do you have is clickbait a problem in Germany? Um, like, no, I think they change because also the big social media platforms they change the algorithm, mm. and then it depends on which in pub publishing house you are working in. So yeah. I would definitely say we don't do this, um, even though we live by clicks. But you cannot like disappoint people all the time by making like a very strong title and then they just click on it and see nothing behind. It's just, I think this wouldn't be a model that works for us. Yeah. We do more of the insightful, long analysis and <laughs> essays and these yeah. kind of things. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, so I guess do you want to talk a bit about um, you, your early life, how you got, how you, where you grew up, how you got to Berlin. Yeah, sure. I grew up as a child of asylum seekers in lower Bavaria. So uh, most people who think of Bavaria would think of mountains, maybe castles and... Uh, and also to American listeners, Bavaria is southern Germany. Yeah, which southern I didn't. Germany. I'm saying that because I didn't know that <laughs> when I okay, came here. To be honest, so when people abroad think about Germany, they think of Bavaria. And if they think of Bavaria, then they think of Upper Bavaria, mm. uh, which used to be a very rich kingdom. And still Bavaria is quite rich, but... Lower Bavaria, that's where I grew up, there's actually nothing. Mm. There are no mountains, only hills, there are no castles, only farms. <laughs> and so I grew up in a very rural area. This happened because my parents applied for asylum. And in Germany, when you apply for asylum, then you just distribute it somewhere, mm. um, usually in very remote places. So some get into cities, my parents weren't as lucky. So that was where I was born. You were born in Bavaria? Yes, oh, I'm okay. born there. Um, that was in 91. So it was a time when there were lots of um, racist attacks against refugees, lots of asylum shelters were burning back at the time. So some people, okay, no, abroad, I think nobody knows about this. But um, for example, right. Rostock-Lichtenhagen was a city where there was an asylum shelter with mainly Vietnamese people. And there were just neo-Nazis um, in 92 going there and throwing Molotov cocktails at it. The house was burning or the um, 
the basement floor and I think the first floors also, but the Vietnamese people who also have survived war, they could evacuate themselves onto the upper floors and it was burning for days and the police didn't go there and Jeez. didn't help anyone. Um, but yeah, in the end, after I think four days and people who were living there or living or the um, other, the neighborhood basically, they all stood around. They even clapped when the house was burning. Really? Yes. So this is an incident that's very much inscribed in many um, minorities' um, collective memories. And also at that time, we were living in an asylum shelter. It was not burning though. So we didn't, or I don't know, my parents didn't tell me about racist attacks. But they, but my father at some point, he told me that he always had a big rope next to the window so that when the Nazis came, because he knew yeah. the images from the TV, we could always climb about. So that was the, like the political climate and also the environment. It's I 1991. Grew up in. Yes, the um, early 90s. Okay. They were very violent in Germany. Um, I stayed in this tiny town until I was 18. So I grew up quite isolated. Wow. There were other asylum seekers, but they were not from Vietnam. So most of them were from, let me think, um, from the Balkan countries. Mm -hmm. So Croatia, Serbia, because um, there has been the genocide and the war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't grow up with other Vietnamese families. I, there were a few though. There were very few families but it was not enough to like have maybe a language class or something like this so yeah. my parents had like other people to hang around with um, and were, why were your parents seeking asylum from Vietnam at, the, at that time mm, that's a bit of a complicated story um, Vietnam and other socialist or former socialist countries they had um, working contracts so, and this was in the 80s mainly. And uh, while there are many people who in the 80s were going to the GDR, so Eastern Germany, my parents went to Bulgaria, um, which was also a um, former communist country. Yeah. And after the wall in Berlin fell, the whole Eastern Bloc was um, very insecure and people did not know whether they could stay or not. And most people were, or most of the contract workers were fired. And many of them, including my parents, decided to not go back, but to just go to another country and see what's there. Uh. So they applied for asylum in other also Eastern or communist countries. Yeah. So my parents went to Germany because they heard it's uh, life is good there. And there they applied for asylum. Yes, that's that's a story. So we are not not exactly refugees, not in the sense that they were, how do you say? So, so there was not an immediate cause. It yeah. was just the moment that they took. But of course, also my family has a very political history that I cannot speak about very openly. Mm, okay. <laughs> it's a bit difficult. But there's also a reason why my parents left the country. Mm. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then so at 18, you were there and then you went to university, right? In Munich? Yeah. Until I was 18, I um, grew up amongst white people, I would say. So I was very well assimilated, which is very important in Germany if you want to make it. Yeah, that's somehow. a big, that's a big thing. Yeah. <laughs> Being well, well adjusted. Yes, I always wanted to be super, super German. Like I was obsessed with my German. I wanted it to be like 
perfect. perfect. I wanted to be, yeah. to be the best in class in German class, and I was obsessed with German history and all of this. I changed my name actually. Um, I was mean? not born Vanessa. Oh, so um, my Vietnamese name is just Van. And I made it a bit longer so that the German people would also understand it. Even though Vanessa is not a German name, but still English is also it's working. Closer. It's a bit closer. So, mm. Mm, And you I, would never go back? I I would actually go back, but I can't because I have legally changed my name. Uh, yes. I went, the, you know, I went the opposite route. Really? Yeah. You got an English name? I got an English. I was born with an English name. Uh, so like listeners would know this if you've <laughs> if heard I've, told this a bunch of times, but I was born as Zi Wan Chang, and then right before I was born, my parents freaked out and added Christopher. Oh. They're like, oh no, he won't assimilate properly. So my birth certificate actually had Christopher Zi Wan Chang. <laughs> then my sister was Hoi Wan Chang, and my brother's mm. Ken Wan Chang. And so for a long time, I was like, Chris, Hoi Wan, Ken Wan. Mm. And then when I finally went to grad school, I decided, I think I maybe I grew up enough, I was more comfortable with who I am, mm. and I just started going by my Chinese name, and then I legally changed it. And oh, that's I like to say I got rid of my colonial name. Yeah, I would like, and I got myself one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How awful is that? Mm. <laughs> but now I see this more like a scar. So mm. it's part of my biography. I know why I did this. Yeah. So I was always harassed with my old name. Other people would just not understand this. They would yeah. make fun of it. So many puns and so many jokes and. Teachers would call me out for this. And in the beginning of every single school year, it was like, what? How is it pronounced? Say it again, say it again. And then I w had to say it again and repeat it again. And then everybody was making fun of me for the rest of the year. And yeah. it was awful. I was really suffering as a child. So I just wanted to get rid of the jokes, basically. But I thought I could reach this by getting rid of my name. And that's what I did. Yeah. And I'm... Forgiving myself, basically, for doing this. I mean, mm. I could say that I feel ashamed this or stupid, but I'm, I mean, I, I know why I did this. Yeah. And this is just how it is. It was my decision. I don't, there's no shame or anything around this. So I'm Vanessa now. Yeah. It's okay. I got my old name tattooed on my arm in a slightly different way. So the symbol, you can see it. I see flowers. Yes, it's two roses. Uh -huh. And my middle name was Hong. And Hong means rose. Uh, and my sister's middle name is also Hong. So um, uh, we both got the same two rose tattoos uh, on our arms, the same ones. Yeah, and that's, that's the way I dealt with it. That's a better way than getting text. Huh? That's a way. That's a better tattoo than getting text. <laughs> I thought so. First I thought, ah, maybe I just tattoo my old name. Yeah. But there was like two, I don't know. I never was a fan of text tattoo. <laughs> but. Yeah, that's... Um, My youth and my super, super assimilated youth. And Would you say it was like really hard growing up as as, uh, as an Asian woman in, in southern Germany? Um, I've heard from Berliners, like, because I've heard them speak of other people who've grown up there, there and they're like, it must have been really hard. That's what they always say. Mm. I don't know if that's, if you had that experience. I, so as a child... I'm sure I would have said no because we're all equal. There's no color. <laughs> <laughs> yes, racism doesn't exist. But um, but now looking back, I know and I feel that I have had a very hard and painful time because I was feeling very lonely, very isolated most of the times. I was gaslighting myself for having racist experiences. Mm -hmm. Many racist experiences I just um, put away. 
but I started rereading my diaries. I was writing a lot oh, of diaries geez. back at the time. <laughs> and there were that. like yeah, it was it's also embarrassing, but um but then there were incidents that I completely forgot like people going into my parents a small restaurant like they have a small takeaway and threatening them just as a joke because they're drunk to burn our house. Like Jeez. like this this kind of things. I, I just totally Reference, forgot as referencing the burning of the asylum. Or? Yeah, or I don't know why they said this. It was very disturbing to read this, but um, I slowly remembered the situation again. It was carnival and they were just drunk and they said, why don't you speak proper German? And um, yeah, and I burned down your house. I don't I don't know. It, it doesn't yes, make lots of sense, but I think that's and scary why, to read. Yeah, I think that's why I just forgot this. And yeah. there are so many moments that I... Forgot, not really forgot. I just put them away, far mm. away, um, so that I didn't have to deal with it. And I started to deal with all these moments when I moved out and I started to study, and I met more people who were people of color or even of Asian descent, and could finally talk about this and put this into context. And then I read lots of post-colonial literature, and this helped me contextualize a lot and understand a lot, and also get back all of these memories. So I would say, yes, it was a really tough time, but um, it also took me a very long time to realize it. And it was also painful to realize it mm -hmm. in the end, because I didn't want to, I never wanted to be a victim. I always yeah. want to be like strong and also strong for my parents because my parents don't speak good German so I was always the one speaking up for all mm. of us um, I can't imagine that yeah no but I, w I don't want to live there anymore so maybe that's telling I can't imagine to go back I love the countryside I love calm areas I love nature but I couldn't be in such a closed minded environment yeah and also it's just triggering <laughs> Yeah, that's understandable. <laughs> and then, so uh, yeah, where'd you go to uni? Mm, I went to Munich, not too far away, because I wanted to stay close to my parents. I wanted to go to a bigger city to just have new experience and all of this. But also coming from the countryside, you know, what? race is just always such a big thing when you're in those anti-racist communities. But I feel like coming from the countryside and not working how the sub uh, how the U-Bahn, the metro is yeah. working and or how cities in general are working and how like, like urban sure. people working. This yeah. is like also a very big thing that I was for a long time very much ashamed of to come from the countryside and uh, not knowing anything. Do Berliners make pick up on your German that you're from southern Germany? They used to in the beginning, oh, but okay. I went to Munich first, so it's still Bavaria. Uh -huh. So the dialect was still okay. And I never had a strong dialect. Just you could hear this when I was outside of Bavaria. Mm. Now I think I you, nobody hears it anymore. I also adapted my language. <laughs> That's good. And it felt great moving to a city. So it oh, was yeah. also a slow development. It didn't start right away because I was very shy in the beginning. But the more I got into political circles, the more interesting everything got for me um, because I finally felt something like friends, people who trust me. I, I completely opened up. I was so shy as a kid. I didn't talk to lots of people because, I, yeah, now I also understand why. I, I always thought I, I was weird, but now I know I'm I'm not that weird. I actually like other people, but um, <laughs> I, I just think that other people could not deal with me because they had yeah. all those stereotypes and prejudices against yeah. me. I mean, it's such a nice feeling to also, yeah to realize that. 
Yeah. Or, or I mean, it's also I think growing up, also knowing what you like and how you are as your who you、uh, what is it? Knowing what your true self self is and allowing、yeah. that to exist. And I think if you're not like trying to be like the popular kid, then especially like in middle high school, like where kids are cruel, like if、mm. you're anything outside of what's the norm, like you get picked on and you shrink up. Yeah, totally. And even where I was growing up, the the norms were like so strong. Like the cool kids would only be the white and super rich kids, and everyone. Like the, I feel like the social divide was even bigger growing up on the countryside of、uh, an area where everyone is well situated. Let's say、uh-huh. I wouldn't say like rich; they don't didn't live in penthouses or stuff. But every family had a house, for example, and we didn't. We haven't. We had an apartment, or first we were in this asylum shelter, and then we had a tiny apartment. So these things, and when people were always visiting each other in their houses, and they had the nice parties,、uh-huh. and I. I couldn't invite anyone, for example. So、yeah. it was very tough to also be poor and a cool kid. And the city, I feel like it would have been a bit easier because when afterwards I met city people, then you live in a Every, house、yeah. block or something,、Everyone's、and then they, living yeah, living in an apartment. Yeah, and then you have other people who are also or other kids who are also poor, and it somehow works. <laughs> You're not the yeah. only one. <laughs> yeah, and then even being Asian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, I think. It's like I talk to people now, and they're always like, they always think that I'm a very social person. But then I, I'm always, I always think of like, I always think of myself in relationship to how I was like in high school, where、mm-hmm. I was just sort of like quiet.、Mm-hmm. And so it's always shocking when someone tells me that. Yeah, I'm. But、um, how is it with you? Because I personally, I feel proud that I、um, changed so、I'm, much that、I'm, I went all this way. Uh yeah, I'm proud too. I'm ha- I'm really happy. I think, I think I wouldn't be where I was、mm. if I wasn't if I didn't go through the experiences that I did. Yeah, I think so too. Like I mean, if, yeah. My me being an artist specifically, I think being alone a lot, being spending a lot of time by myself, I think that allowed me to build the confidence that like it's okay being alone.、Mm. It's okay to do your own thing. It's okay being. Weird and no one really caring because otherwise, yeah, I don't think art. It's art. It's hard to be an artist if you don't allow those things to happen. Yeah, true. Or doing anything creative. Yeah, sometimes. Well, I spoke about being isolated in a very negative way, but okay, it's not like I. <laughs> I enjoyed being all alone, but now I think I was for so long, and if everyone would hate me for whatever reason. Then I'd be fine. I I was fine. I I it it worked somehow、yeah. to just be by myself. I can entertain myself. I'm I'm happy with books also. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it defines us. I think someone. I think I just heard a podcast, and I think someone was asked like, "What is something that you wouldn't want to experience again, but that shaped you?" And then the person was like, "Me having a tough childhood."、Mm. You know, it's like it's not something that you'd want to go through again, but. It defines you, builds you up when you become an adult. That I think you don't get if you didn't have a somewhat difficult childhood. Yeah, sure. Sometimes it makes me, makes me sad because friends and colleagues and everyone is speaking is romanticizing their own childhood、oh, yeah. and youth, and I'm never romanticizing my childhood and youth. Or people like, like yeah, <laughs> high school is great, so college is great.、I'm、exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was the most awful time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and 
don't know if there was anything I would look back onto like happily. Maybe just the time I had with my siblings or so. But yeah. I'm just I'm just so happy to age. I love aging. I love becoming older. Every single year of my life, life gets better. Me too. <laughs> I, think, I think for me, each year has been getting better. Yeah, so far it hasn't turned. Um, Whereas all the people, a lot of people I know who hate their lives are, are still looking back to like college years. No, oh my god, no, yeah. never. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And so, so then you studied in Munich. What did you study? I studied anthropology, okay. anthropology and law. It's super random. I tried to study medicine first because I wanted to be a good Asian kid. Oh, and were your parents um, pressuring you? Not so much, but I was also. Um, I wanted to make my parents proud. Mm. I don't know. It's, <laughs> no, it's, it's, let's it's just say even a bit more Asian, but I always saw that my parents had a very tough time and they're yeah. working like three jobs and it was mm-hmm. everything they did was just so exhausting. And I thought if we can have a better life and we can achieve it by me being a doctor, then why not? Um, and maybe, yeah, they would be proud of me. <laughs> Big Asian kid dream. Were they not um, proud of you? Um, I think they always were, but they never expressed it. That's very Asian. <laughs> yeah. have, you, have they ever said, I love you? No. I don't think my parents have ever said that No, to my me. parents don't say this. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I'm um, very much into relationship anarchy and polyamory and all of these things right now. So I'm reading a lot. And what I read is not exactly from this concept, but lots of people love this book, is um, The Five Love Languages. Uh-huh. Um, and it's about... So it basically says, it's not scientifically backed, it's just a theory, that people express and receive love in a very different way. And this the author, Gary Chapman, he defined five things. It's like words of affirmation, physical touch, mm-hmm. gifts, acts of services, mm-hmm. and quality time. And I thought, growing up, I always saw the white kids enjoying lots of quality time, lots of physical touch and lots of words of affirmation. Mm-hmm. So parents would just pat on the shoulder, say, hey, I'm proud of you. You're so great. And then they would just spend time together. But this, all of this I didn't have because my parents worked so much that we couldn't spend uh, quality time together. They did not touch me for whatever other reason. <laughs> and they didn't say I love you for also whatever other reason because maybe they were also not growing up like this. Mm-hmm. But what they did though was to give me like tons of food or yeah. whatever they could do for me, they did. Like they were, if they could make it, they would also drive me around and... Yeah. Um, and do these things or when there was a school event then they would also prepare food so that I could also bring some and um, now they're always asking me about um, have I eaten yet what have I eaten with whom have I eaten and now I understand that this is their way of expressing love it took me so long to understand this that it's not that my parents didn't love me but they expressed love in a completely different way that was particularly different from the white parents I would say or western style yeah that I grew up with I saw everyone like this and I thought, okay, this is how like parents' love should look like. Yeah. And now I understand, no, it shouldn't. And so they worked or they migrated and they worked so much because of their love for us and not because they're workaholics. Yeah. Okay, I think they're also workaholics, but <laughs> yeah, but it was for us. You wouldn't stay stand in a takeaway all the time. Just it's not fun. Yeah. Like my parents, they wouldn't say it's fun. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, yeah, so, I mean, it's hard, right? I think it's like, yeah, the kids are, uh, you know, I guess you and I are gr- grown up with the Western lens. Mm. And so we're always comparing 
what our parents are doing in relationship to how other Western mm. parents are acting. Mm. I think that's a hard thing for the parents to have to like navigate. Yeah, and they have so many other issues, not just the jobs, but I feel, I think migrating is a tough thing too. And mm -hmm. they were also experiencing all the violence. And I know they, they try to keep it away from me and it must have break, broken their heart if I'm beaten up, for example. So I didn't speak about this. Yeah, these things come later, you know, we have to get to talk first. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but of course it was also violent. People were beating me up all the time or chasing me with stones and really? all of these things. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you know, these are the stories that, that I come back when, yeah. when, when I trust people and when I think about it. Thanks for trusting me. <laughs> um, and then, so yeah, so then you want to impress your parents. Yeah, but I didn't. Degree. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I didn't um, get the place for med school. Mm -hmm. My grades were quite good, but not good enough for the one I applied to. Mm -hmm. And I didn't exactly understand the system because it's like, depending on your grades, you should apply for this or that school and this in and no one was a particular priority. No, no, never. Mm. Like I was even asking for scholarships and people just gave me a, a piece of paper where there were names of scholarships, but nobody was just really advising me how to do this. Mm. I got, I eventually got a scholarship in all of this, but yeah, I didn't know all of these mm. things. Mm, and then I had to, I wanted to study and I just applied for <laughs> for a discipline that had basically no um, entry barriers. Okay. So where you didn't have to have a specific mark yeah. to get in. And anthropology it was. So I started to do this. I applied for a scholarship, but also by accident. I didn't understand. I, I thought I applied for a journalism program. In the end, it was like a proper cool scholarship. And then I thought, oh, okay, um, now I receive quite a lot of money for studying anthropology, so maybe I just should <laughs> stick with it. <laughs> and in the end, I had fun studying anthropology. I really enjoyed the subject, what but did, it was super random that I even did this. Did you enjoy? In what what was the what area were you spe specifically studying in anthropology? Mm, visual anthropology. Okay. Um, I was interested in documentaries and representing different cultures through different also artistic means and lenses and the reception of this. I also later on wrote a master thesis on um, Vietnamese post-war cinema, for example. Yeah. So we saw, was we saw much one of thing. those at Nina and Alex's film. Yeah, I wrote about this one. Um, what was the name of that Bao called? Din Thang Mui, yeah. Until the 10th uh, month comes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it's a beautiful film. I recommend it. I'll link it. It's. I think it's a, a strange film because... It looked like it was made in like the 40s, mm. but then and everyone, so uh, Alex, Hing, and Neen, they were hosting a uh, Asian film club. Mm. It was a really interesting idea because they were like specifically showing Asian films that were not mainstream or not specifically more, more specifically not Chinese, Korean, or Japanese films. Mm. So like Vietnamese films, uh, even going as far as like Middle Eastern films, Iranian films, things that you wouldn't think of as typically Asian from, from Hollywood standpoint. Yeah, that's right? cool. And so that was one of the films. But yeah, and we were all we watched it and then none of us knew anything about it. And then we were looking it up after and then we were surprised. I think it was filmed like the eighties. Uh yeah, it's right. 80s. But it looked like it was mm -hmm. filmed the forties and so we were all like trying to figure out why it was done that way and there wasn't a lot of information that we could find 
uh, at least on English sites or German sites. So, but in books you will find the information. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, I was very much inspired by French cinema because, like, uh, yeah, <laughs> French colonialism. Um, but there was also quite a lot of mutual exchange, also in cinematography. So I think that's a reason. <laughs> yeah, I'll put a, <laughs> I'll put a, I'll put a link. French cinema. Um, yeah, and then I read. Then after Munich, you went to Paris and London. Or um, yeah. So once I moved out, I was like, "Wow, there's another world I can see, and there's out, so like, much of, of I can Bavaria, see." Of Bavaria, okay, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I just took any chance I could get to to go farther away. So <laughs> Munich is 120 kilometers away from my parents' place, and then I did Erasmus, which is a student exchange program in Paris. Um, I did my master's in London. What was your master's? Um, this was Southeast Asian studies. Okay. So that's the other thing I did in my anthropology studies that I took the chance to just um, get to know a bit more about my yeah, roots, if you want to use these words, or about um, Southeast Asian culture, about my heritage, basically. I thought maybe I could learn yeah. something. Did you? Um, I did, yeah, in my very own way. So... Yeah. I also did field research amongst uh, first-generation Vietnamese people uh, who were gardening together. So I was with them in their garden and observing them and um, describing the community garden as an empowering space where they can get back control over body and land um, because they came as contract workers where everything was... So the gardening in, in Europe, in London? Uh, it was uh, close to Munich where okay. I was studying, so... I had a group of, of Vietnamese people who after work, they were gardening together okay, and they were well. planting vegetables. And also this planting was uh, a process, a homemaking process for them because on the one hand, they could transfer the Asian vegetables that they grew up with to the, a completely new context. And some of them could also use their knowledge because they used to be uh, or come from uh, agricultural area of family but they also planted new things for the kids it was super interesting by, by how they designed the gardens basically who owned the garden um i don't know who owned them but they were renting parcels uh, okay. that were quite cheap okay yeah and then they had um, lots of events there so there were lots of barbecue things going on and people were just hanging around there in their gardens and speaking about food basically which yeah. is so connecting and German people and other people would come around and just have a look. And so this was also an interesting integration process and dynamics going on because I said, oh, wow, those people, they are quite hardworking. They are quite skilled also. What are they planting and what's it all about? And food is just is such a, an easy, common ground to talk about and to understand each other. It's, it's very uh, visceral and, uh, what's the word, primal. You don't have to explain it. <laughs> uh, yeah, primal or universal, I would universal, say. Universal, yeah. Yeah, everyone can understand this all over the world. Gardening is a super fascinating thing. It can also be a liberating thing because, so what I was saying before is when you, when everything you do is so well regulated because you are a contract worker and you are migrants, so you get into this whole system of, of, of laws and duties and you cannot decide much over your life by yourself but then you have this space and you can just do whatever you want you can like even do nothing <laughs> yeah. or just hang around or let everything um, fall apart or, or just make it very beautiful and decorated so you can really do things and yeah but this was one aspect I um, learned also about history and politics in Southeast Asia which was more specific and was not linked to diaspora than 
And I really enjoyed to do this. And it's a pure co no, okay, maybe there are no coincidences in life, but um, I learned a lot and I also decided to do an internship in Vietnam and to live there for half a year, see how it's like there. Did you did you did you grow up learning Vietnamese? Mm, like yeah. Like you spoke at home? Only at home though, okay, yeah. so only with my parents. So my vocabulary is very limited. I can only talk about food. That's it. Yeah, food, <laughs> taking a shower, handing handing the bowls. How was school? <laughs> handing the bowls of rice over. <laughs> that's that's my vocabulary for Cantonese. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always say my mom didn't force us to learn Chinese. So mm. at the house, we spoke English, and, and my brother, my sister, and I all lost the ability to speak. Mm. Yeah. Something that I think I always am upset about. But my mom always says, yeah, I just had too many other things to worry about then to force you to speak Chinese at home. That's what she always says. Yeah, my parents say the same. Also, no, they, okay, we spoke Vietnamese, but that's because they don't speak German. Mm. But for example, they wouldn't correct my Vietnamese all the time because mm. for them it was not important that I speak good Vietnamese. Yes. Yeah. So like my Vietnamese is so embarrassing, but... <laughs> We have to start somewhere. That's what I learned. This past year, I've been learning German. It's like the first time I've actually learning another language. Mm. So, I thought about reclaiming broken or, let's say, um, changing language. Mm -hmm. Because why should we even feel upset or ashamed about not speaking our mother tongue? It has political reasons why we don't do this. What do you think those political reasons are? Okay, with Chinese, I don't think it's the same, but Vietnamese is just a language that has or political and economic reasons. I There are no benefits, basically. I cannot um, capitalize on Vietnamese, so no, I don't get a good reputation. Nobody would say, wow, great, you speak Vietnamese. <laughs> Nobody will employ me for speaking Vietnamese, <laughs> these kind of things. Also, um, it's not encouraged for migrant kids to learn their mother tongue. So curriculums are changing slowly, but because also because people know now that it's better to speak the first language well and then the second. But yeah, in school and everywhere, they would just say, yeah, you live in Germany, so you speak German. So nobody encourages you to speak German. And also my parents thought um, it's better if the girl speaks German because she will have an easier life. And that was the case, but it was only the case because society wants us to do so. So these are the reasons. And I don't, and I feel that they make me sad. And I think, wow, I lost so much through it, but I w don't want to blame myself or my parents for this. Yeah. So why don't accept the flawed language that I speak um, and do something nice with it? I thought about organizing a um, trash Vietnamese poetry slam or something like this <laughs> where everyone is just making Vietnamese poems but <laughs> nobody's like having a closer look on grammar or anything Yeah, we just say what comes to our mind and maybe it's, it's maybe it's very different maybe we cannot do complete logic texts that are with good grammar but maybe we can collect words from our childhoods yeah. and, or work with sounds more than sentences. Maybe. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I guess for me, my sadness comes from uh, there's a whole community of family members that I can't really uh, talk to. Mm. And so it's sort of like a broken link. Mm. I'm also very proud of um, like Cantonese food and it saddens me that like I can't just go into a Cantonese restaurant and read the words and order some food like I, I know what the foods are sort of but mm. it's like 
that you know the food comes with the language yeah, right true. and i think i mean I th- all of asian food i think is like really fascinating and tasty and something that i think is compared like when i think of like american food it's like you, you know what i mean that's sort of what or like yeah. european food like german yeah. food like okay like compare that to like almost any asian the history of any Asian food and it's like so much more interesting yeah they have such a rich history and also so much spiritual meaning in all of this sometimes and things are balanced out and all of this like there's a whole philosophy behind it it's not just like yeah Tiramisu, which tastes great, uh, but uh, the whole story is that an Italian dude just had leftovers and <laughs> made something nice of it. So, and this is like the story for lots of European food. <laughs> French cuisine is a bit different, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, an American food is just like a conglomeration, but mm. yeah. So that's that's sort of where my sadness comes from, and yeah, I why think- I think it's important. Thinking about um, kids and future, this also sometimes makes me sad because I I wouldn't know. I I don't think I could speak Vietnamese to my child. Yeah. Like, no, I I, I would give up maybe at some point because I don't have enough words. Yeah. But maybe there are other ways. I don't know. Maybe we can also still learn a lot. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to go to China, so Hmm. maybe in two years I'll be somewhat proficient. Hmm. Yeah, my half year... In Vietnam, didn't wasn't enough. I'm my Vietnamese got much better then, and I can write and read not properly though because I didn't. Of course, it's not the same when you go to school like for ten years or just go <laughs> basically on some sort of longer holidays. Mm. But I do mistakes, but I can still write and read. That's good already. Yeah, yeah. But I think I would also need years so that people couldn't tell that I'm not. A Viet Kiều, which is a, which is how they call Vietnamese people who don't live in Vietnam yeah, but far yeah. away and forgot their roots. Yeah, names for <laughs> it's not a positive term. Of every that for every Asian or anything any culture. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, I guess I'm less interested in like sounding like full Chinese. I don't think that would ever happen where I don't have an accent if I ever learn Chinese. But just for me, just being able to read and write and speak hmm. and converse, but. Yeah, but I mean, it takes a lifetime to learn a language. I feel like I'm still getting, each year I'm getting better at English. (laughs) You know? True, absolutely true. I'm sure you're German, same. I mean, it's just like, I'm just thinking like, you know, the steps that I went through, like undergraduate, living by myself, talking to like people who are not my age, then going to grad school, Mm. having theoretical talk, then going out of college again, and meeting people who are older than me, and then like, each time is like a different level and expanding the ways of talking in English. Yeah, you know? same for me. I mean, I'm a writer, so um, for me, language is a craft. And the more you think about it, the more you work in it, the more refined it gets, the more precise the words will be that you use and yeah. all of this. And I think the older you get, for me, the hardest part about learning a new language is very quickly realizing how you cannot express yourself. Yeah. Like... All the nuances is out of the way. It's just like, (laughs) I need this. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Um, So, yeah. Okay. So then you did all that. And then how'd you go to end up in Berlin? What'd you think of Berlin? And then how'd you start your podcast? (laughs) Um, I ended up in Berlin because I got a job offer. So I went to, so after my master's in London, I went back to Munich to go to journalism school. I did this out of nostalgia, I think. I thought about going into politics or into research so both were options to me 
But then I thought, oh, as a as a child, you always wanted to become a journalist. So why don't you apply for journalism school? And it's and it worked uh, surprisingly because it's actually very hard to get into journalism school. Or um, there are two schools that where thousands of people apply and only a few would get in, like forty five people. And then I thought, okay, wow, okay, you got into <laughs> this school and it's so tough. So I you should do this. <laughs> I went there and then I. Um, did my internships or my first internship and I thought about why not see Berlin and go to online and this internship also went very well so they I got a job offer which is also super rare I didn't even think about whether I wanted to work here to be very honest in how the, many years ago was this um four years now okay. I work here for two years and yeah and then yeah I got this um, job offer which is also super rare for graduates um, because usually here, uh, journalism is super tough and competitious. So you start out as freelancer and at some point, maybe you're lucky and then you get a fixed contract. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I got it and it was in Berlin. So I just moved here and um, that's how it is. And that's how I ended up here. And now I would say, since you were asking, how do I like it here? That Berlin became my home. And I think it's the first home that really feels like home to me. Really? I didn't so, expect I'm still that. looking for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I mean, I had never had plans to go to Berlin. Like everything I tell you, my whole life is so random. It's just built on coincidences. That's fine. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like, yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm similar in the sense I just apply for things and decide later whether I should do yeah, it. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's how I do it. Like I didn't, like the China <laughs> job, like I just saw a posting. I was like, okay, I'll just apply. And then mm. like in May, it was like, you got an interview. And then in the May, it's like, you got the job. And I was like, and then I was like, do I want to go to China? <laughs> it wasn't, it was like, the you know what I mean? Yeah. But I like it that way because, you know, it's also liberating. I, I feel like I can do what I feel like doing in a specific moment. I don't have lots of social pressure because my parents don't understand what I do anyway. So <laughs> they wouldn't put any pressure on me and other people neither. So... I just apply and then see what I get. And <laughs> I ended up here and this is the place where I started to f to truly find communities that mm. uh, are more similar to me, where I found, where I can go, where I can um, be in so many spaces and feel completely welcome and normal there. Mm. Not normal in the sense of like everyone else, but... Um, like just okay as I am. And I, this is also something I didn't understand first. I only understood when I got back and I thought most spaces that I was in throughout my childhood, youth, and even through in my early studies were spaces that I adapted to. Mm -hmm. I went there and I justified myself. I explained myself. I adapted. I, I just had a look how are the people talking? How are they dressed? And tried to just like fit in smoothly. So yeah. that, that was always my approach. And not only that, but I was also very sensitive to how people might react to me because I, I grew up as a minority and um, so I w was always the outsider and in the worst case, I was attacked for this, mm -hmm. like also violently and physically attacked. So I am, whenever I enter a space, I'm very much aware of how people perceive me um, just by, by looks or comments and how they interact, body language. And this is a nice skill on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's very exhausting. Yeah. And this is something I realized when I suddenly went into spaces and just felt completely comfortable. I was not putting out all, all my uh, 
how you know because um, sometimes um, snails or cats they have antennas whiskers. or something whiskers yeah and they're always standing out yeah so so you can always feel like what's the vibe yeah and, and And here in Berlin, I, I enter so many spaces and I don't have to do this. I don't have to code switch and I yeah. don't have to like check everything out. And I feel, feel so much more relaxed. Like my whole body is not as tense, tense yeah. anymore. And this just feels good and I feel comfortable. <laughs> and um, that's why I love this city so much. There's also, also, of course, many bad things going on. But so far, um, this is quite a new experience for me. A consistent one. Of course, I had this moment in other cities. But for a very short time, like with one specific other person or something. Yeah. But here, I just, yeah. Yeah, or there's more safe spaces or there's already, I mean, I think of like L.A., New York in the sense that like there's just more types of people there. So there's mm. just less reason for people to like stare at you or mm. uh, not that it doesn't happen. And there's definitely certain unsafe spaces in those cities. Mm. And there's definitely unsafe spaces in Berlin. But it's like, yes, of course, there's just more people here and just more different types of people. So and more choice yeah. with uh, more different people. You have more choice because before I, I was doomed to spend my time with certain people <laughs> and I somehow got along but um, but now many of the friends I had before that I still love I don't know whether at this moment of my life they would still we would still be friends like it's okay I love them it was nice to know them and it's, I still keep in touch but now I just have so many other people that I'm interested in that are yeah. so different from the people I basically had to st yeah. spend time with before And you'd yeah. give prioritize their time. Yeah. That's how I see it. Yeah. No, and I also just like to mingle amongst others, to change personalities all the time. Because um, it's not just the community aspect. I like how diverse Berlin is. It sounds so much like a cliche, but um, there are so many subcultures. And I just love to dive into them. I, I dance and nobody cares. And nobody is like, because the city is so big, people are not talking about each other all the time. So you can completely switch circles and just have a new self there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah. And then uh, how did uh, Rice and Shine come about? Mm. Um, and why did you want to do it? Yeah, I'm, ho I'm hosting this podcast with a friend of mine who is now feeling like, my wife because we're in, in touch every single day and are you in couple therapy yet <laughs> i'm sure that at one point we need this <laughs> but uh, we went to journalism school together and this was exciting because that was for me the first time in my life that i saw another asian person um who was mm -hmm. similar to me who had who had similar interests similar skills and goals in life so I never had this and first it felt a bit threatening to be honest I thought wow okay what if she's like covering all of my interests and are we like uh, competitors now yeah and but this was only my fear when I first saw her but as soon as we talked we just got very exciting all the time because we had it's just like boom wow some finally <laughs> People, uh, we just exchanged stories about our childhood, about our youth, about our parents, about food, about our upbringing, about our image, about what annoys us, um, about reports about our communities. So this was already great and we always thought, wow, we have to do something. But yeah, 
it's it just happens to many projects that you say, well, we have to do something, and then nothing actually happens. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. It took me a year to start this podcast up. Yeah, thinking so, about it. So rise and shine is, I think, the same. We we thought about it, but we didn't do anything, and we moved to different cities afterwards, and we stood in touch via phone, and at some point we were calling each other and just updating each other on New Year's plans, Lunar New Year. And we both said, yeah, we will visit our families and go through Munich. And where we used to study, and then we thought, okay, you know what? We should, if we do this podcast or whatever thing, then we should do it now because we don't see each other anyway, never. And if there's a one chance of meeting, then we just grab it. We should grab it and do it. Record. So we um, we booked our tickets. We set up a Google Docs. We brainstormed ideas of what we would do. We were still open about formats, like we could have done YouTube or podcast or anything and about guests we wanted to invite and subjects we wanted to address and there again we got so excited that we had like 40 ideas or so from the very beginning which would be if we do monthly episodes what we do now uh, would be like enough to talk about for three years yeah. um, I thought I thought in a similar way like <laughs> how many well like how many interviews could I get yeah and then how how could I split it up <laughs> and how long that would, how many uh, years I could do, but yeah. But you know, friends of ours, um, they were like, what, but you were two Vietnamese-German girls talking about Vietnamese-German perspectives? Isn't it going to be like, haven't you told everything after like four or five episodes? <laughs> and we're like, gosh, no, we have 40 ideas already. <laughs> and if there's like one thing that we will not fail at is uh, having ideas and interesting guests to talk with. This is like the technical description of how we started. But of course, there was the underlying wish of creating something that is different where we could finally represent ourselves for the first time. Because we grew up so, both grew up in Bavaria and quite isolated. And we grew up with lots of Asian American media. What was Asian American media for you? Um... So later on, especially with internet, was articles, blogs, YouTube videos. Did you have Zanga? Huh? Did you have Zanga? No. Oh, I guess you, that was like really popular among the Asian <laughs> American community. It's like a, I think a, it's a it's a blog, and, and you could just sort of like put like cutesy things all over and really customize <laughs> it. It was like the alternative to MySpace. Mm. Oh, we had something like this in Germany. It was called Agency or something. <laughs> that the Asian Germans would use? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, but basically it was more Asian-American pop culture that okay. swept over here. But I'm trying to think, what is that? <laughs> I don't even know what Asian-American culture is. What that, it is? No, like what, what would, what, how it would be represented from a German perspective. Oh, okay. I'm very bad with names okay. um, in this regard because I think I just clicked through everything I could find and, uh, okay. and wasn't loyal to anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no but there are like comedians, movies, and especially on YouTube, I found a lot of stuff. Okay. And now more recent, you have artists like Aquafina, mm. <laughs> Way Adore, which is um, cool. And now films popping up. But this was a bit after us or that's like same recent, time. That's like two years ago. But not the teenage times. Yeah. yeah. 
I don't know. I don't know what it would be. But okay, maybe um, later on. I Sorry, I'm just, I was just. Curious. I wasn't trying to grill you. <laughs> I, I totally I understand why curious. you're curious about I was like, this. What is that? <laughs> but um, I think we try to copy this identity, okay. like this being cool but also cute, and um, use yeah. lots of English words. Um, yeah, yeah, these kind of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we wanted to do something that is our own and to uh, where we could create our own narratives because in the end, the only stories about Vietnamese people that we knew that were German was made by white people and their perspectives on us, which we could not identify with at all. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that they are wrong or or whatever, but they it's their perspectives. <laughs> you think they're wrong? I think it's just a very interesting or different perspective. It's just not mine. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm not sure. Well, I guess I say wrong. I mean, I mean, I'm being harsh. I'm just, I just not sure what the point is. Mm. Like, like for who is it made for? Yeah, you of know? course for the others. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but I see your point. <laughs> you know, but I'm just thinking like, if you are really interested in like making a beautiful piece of work as an audience, like, w like wouldn't you want the things to be made by the person who originally either mm. started it or told it? Like, I, I mean, I understand not everyone does, but it just in my mind, like, I wouldn't want to have most like 99.9% of the time I don't want Chinese food to be made by a white person mm, yeah you know or Mex <laughs> Mexican food made by a white person mm, you know or mm. it could happen but like most of the time it probably is questionable <laughs> you know I'm not as um, sensitive but there but I totally um, get your point and Mintu is like the same I'm like yeah everyone can have uh, their perspectives and sometimes they are very questionable but in the end um all of these perspectives put together are maybe close to an accurate um, image of what we could be. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't think there's an essence, you know? I don't want to get into the an essentialist point of view of any culture. So so that's so that's my point. But still in Germany we also have the special case that there was this very popular book in 2010 um, written by Thilo Sarrazin and it was called Deutschland schafft sich ab. So Deutschland is um, What is the English word though? Like destroying itself. Okay. And the theory was um, this was because of immigrants. Of course, who else? It sounds like America. And, um, but not all immigrants are bad. So there are smarter immigrants and less smart immigrants. And Vietnamese people were the model minorities that he put hmm. as an example to say, yeah, see the Arabs and Muslims and all of these, it yeah. just doesn't work. The cultures are not compatible and Asians are super smart and, um, yeah, capable of lots of things. So they are the good ones. So this discourse started quite late in Germany, but it really did change something. So after this, there were so many articles and films and discourses about Asian people and lots of interest also because people kind of projected all of their wishes on them, that there could be something like silent, grateful, hardworking mm. immigrants. Yeah. That this is something that could work. And also they needed an excuse to to basically disvalue all the others or to treat the others badly. Yeah. And have a more or less even as they felt a scientific framework around this because uh, you, they measured IQ and all of these things. It was super racist, um, but this was the point where the mass media really started to get interested in Vietnamese people in Germany. So 2010. Yeah, 2009 okay. was the first articles, but since 2010, and it's still going on, especially yeah. with the many 
with the rising number of refugees in 2015, um, the interest grew again. It's like really, I can completely see <laughs> the correlations there. Yeah. So as soon as you have lots of immigrants, they look at the Vietnamese. Yeah. Mm. As like, oh, look, they they assimilated properly. Why mm. can't these new exactly. migrants exactly. or asylum seekers do it well as well? So they don't. So they never still tell our stories from the viewpoint of really understanding us. But it was always they that they tell our stories to prove that the others are bad. Yeah. These are the stories that we grew up with and they were super annoying to us. And we thought, no, we just have to find our own narratives. But what is our own narrative? So it didn't really exist. So we can, of course, say this is the outsider's perspective on us and we feel it's wrong. And then we could say we're the opposite, but then we're somehow also proving the point. And we, I don't know if we're the opposite, if we're in fact like lazy and uh, <laughs> not so smart. We being you and you specifically or? Uh, no, us um, Vietnamese German oh, people oh, maybe. Oh, okay. Or Mintu and me first. Yeah, let's start well, with Mintu and me. I feel like, it does, does it have to be that dichotomy? Like just because you're opposed to it doesn't mean that. It's wrong. No, no, that's, yeah, that, that's where I try to get is that um, we d neither want to, we didn't just want to oppose it. So what we are looking for is our own stories, which we don't have. So that's why we started pretty much without a clear concept. We just thought, okay, we just start talking about ourselves and yeah. see what happens. And then what happened was <laughs> to me a miracle that other people started to tell their story. So by us speaking about ourselves other people spoke about themselves and now with each episode we're getting more colorful and interesting image of our communities which were not based, so much connected before based on the people who are responding yes okay and who we also invite as guests then or when we do events then we see ah this is also possible or yeah Lots of people just have feedback. They say, oh, interesting that you grew up like this. I grew up like this or this yeah. is different for me. And yeah. we learn so much by our podcast. It's incredible. We never thought this would go that way because we, we didn't have like a very clear sense of what we would do. And now it gets clearer and clearer to me after one and a half years that this is exactly what we want. We want to look for our own narratives in a way that we can control ourselves um, that are respectful, kind to each other. And we're just um, looking. We, we don't have answers, but we have more and more questions, and that's yeah. beautiful. Well, it's not, uh, for me at least, I mean, I think the way I would see it in, is like not that you're opposed to this narrative, but you're looking to expand it. Yeah. Right? And I think it doesn't have to be the right one. It, it's, it's, it, the goal is, again, not to be the speaker of your race mm. but i mean I, and i think when i said i was opposed to like a german or a white person representing a minority group as problematic is because they've been doing it for so long mm. that it's not expanding it it's just continuing to be refined okay, yeah. and in essence box in mm. a view that is quite far from the source Yes, you know, I and see your point. It's yeah. not like I, I'm not Agree. I'm not that close to like a Chinese source, but I, th I would like to think I'm closer than a random white person. Mm. You know, so like I'm always suspicious when I see like 
those like travel books like the lonely planet and it's like written by a white <laughs> dude in asia i'm like come on you you know you could have mm. gone like an asian person they would have so many more interesting things to like point out probably yeah you know that's been passed on by generations of information versus like just one white dude yeah and i think we also reflect our motivation to do this because the others would not and they just reproduce the same old clichés for for forever basically yeah and we always question the image that we are doing because our goal is also not to to picture us as great minorities or or I don't know so i think the only goal i would say is to show the diversity with, even without yeah. within our communities so yeah. we if we can do that then i'm already happy i don't i'm not looking for any essence or something yeah just a more Yeah, um, complex picture because it hasn't ever been complex and now we are creating complexity. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, so that, that kind of links right into the last subject, which is Atlas, mm. since we're talking about white perspectives, retelling stories of minority groups. Um, uh, do you want to talk about it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, our podcast has also become a platform for raising voices and being vocal about criticism. So a friend of mine told me about a theater piece that was uh, played in Leipzig. And it was a piece about a f um, Vietnamese family history. Three generations starting in Vietnam, they migrated to Germany. And the piece was written, staged and played by white people only, which I find a uh, Interesting. <laughs> That's a very nice word to um, say. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Or so for me, I I would say I don't need this. So I yeah. I, I wanted to see this piece. Um, maybe full disclaimer: I did not see it. I wanted to, but the first time I um, tried, my train was canceled, and the second time, because it was not in Berlin, there was an accident behind the stage. So and I thought, no, I'm not going to try to go to another city and get time. tickets for a third time. You so, went to, I didn't so you went to Leipzig twice? Yes. Jesus Christ. No, the first time I didn't because my train was canceled. Oh, yeah, okay. And my first time was canceled and the second one was late. So, and then it was like, okay, it won't work. Um, but I, I'm so tired of these outside perspectives. So I... I I can imagine that there would be a theater piece that is about Vietnamese people that is written, staged, and played by white people, but only if you make it a concept, you know? You say, What do you mean? If you reflect that this is like your very own specific, probably weird and false um, <laughs> okay. view on Vietnamese uh, people. Yeah, you know? like with a huge I, star I could, disclaimer saying like, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. you could make it... A, And then you can maybe open a dialogue about is this even possible and how would you do this? So I, I see I see a constellation where this would work like as art form. You're very open. <laughs> <laughs> But like my political self says, I really don't need this. Why are they even doing? How c does it even come to their mind? And this will also in this day and age, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's right. It's already been done. Yes, yes. And also, well. you also have to know about Leipzig, where this was played, is that this is a city with a very high Vietnamese population. Okay. So if there is a place where it's not, it should not be hard to find actors and all of this, then it's Leipzig. Mm. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know that fact. <laughs> yeah, anyway, this was not the only piece. We were talking about several other pieces that were playing in Germany in different other cities where there were similar dynamics or 
or elements of yellow facing, um, these kind of things, or a carnival where people dress up as Chinese people. There's a whole village actually dressing up as, uh, yeah, a whole German seemingly village. Chinese people. A whole German village doing this. Yeah, the, oh. um, it, it's called Dietfurter Chinesenfasching. Okay. And the whole village just paints their faces yellow oh, and geez. wears like straw hats and yeah, <laughs> becomes emperors or farmers. Or it's it's a super weird thing. And what they argue is they each year they invite the Chinese delegation to come and they love it. Like from China? Yeah. No, oh. not from China or from like working in the embassy oh, in geez. Germany. But also... People from China go there and find it very funny. So they say, well, if the Chinese people are okay, we have fun, why not? They don't see the racist implications in this and the long history and the violent history of yellow facing. Anyway, we did an episode on this. Um, I saw the title, couldn't couldn't understand it. Hmm? I said, I saw the title on my podcast, downloaded, but it was... I have to confess, I didn't hear it because it's <laughs> very fast German. Yeah, we our audience is German, <laughs> which is good. I mean, I I think I always I think something that I learned a lot while living in Germany is thinking about the privileging of language and mm. and English as a privileged language and who gets to talk about it, uh, how information is disseminated. Yeah, it was something that I I didn't really even think about when I was living in the U.S. It was a pretty extreme thing because in order to discuss these kind of subjects, you can almost only read English mm-hmm. literature and I speak your language but you don't speak mine mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> I'm aware <laughs> yeah and with this episode which what was interesting is that we we are not only a platform to share stories but we also share anger and frustration and we become a platform to speak up for lots of others mm. and find words where others fail to find words because maybe they also need time to understand or maybe because they don't have the reach or the audience. And so that was the first time that we addressed the piece, but where we also were bigger on, I wouldn't say campaigning because, I mean, in the end we just showed a misery and um, people can do with it whatever they want. But um, a few months later, we learned that the piece won a major theater prize. And um, oh, and the other thing that I th- I don't think you mentioned, but they also interviewed a lot of Vietnamese stories, but then didn't credit them, right? For, yeah, for, so, for, yeah, for, yeah. For the piece, so a lot of the script and story were from actual experiences from Vietnamese people. Yeah, um, for this story, but also so many other theater yeah. pieces. Yeah. And um, this process of reflecting and sharing these kind of stories started when the um, Peace Atlas won a major theater prize and also came to Berlin. And this is where several people working in the theater or let's say the culture industry really got upset because it was not just this one thing that, and not the first time that it happened that they were interviewing Vietnamese people and basically take their stories and capitalize on them for themselves only. Yeah, the exoticization of it. So there's so many problematic layers to it, not only taking stories, putting them out of context and doing your own thing without even reflecting this part, which can be interesting, but in this, but if there's not even a reflection, what is it worth to me? Mm-hmm. Um, but also, of course, making money of it, getting lots of reputation because I, I call them diversity subjects. They are very popular in the, at the moment. So they diversity get lots subjects. Yeah, every piece that has to do something with diversity. Uh, okay. It doesn't have to be um, 
about ethnical minorities, but can be anything. They get lots of funding, lots of interest, lots of um, very good reviews, but this never goes to the community. So it's only certain people, I'd say, the white people. Um, and reviewed, they get the, and reviewed by white people, and, and they are by, reviewed by white people, and by awarded white, by yeah, white people. Yeah, yeah. They seem the, the whole all system, of this. Yeah, yeah, the whole yeah. system. And we are just kept out. So we tell our super intimate stories that are sometimes linked to trauma and and are basically special. It's also hard work to tell stories. So. In the beginning, we were talking about, I, I, it took me like 20 years maybe to understand that I experienced violence and to put this in words and to um, contextualize it. That this is just hard inner work to do. Mm-hmm. And the people who are interviewed, they do this work, but they don't get nothing in return for it. Yeah, People say that they get, um, that their stories are told, but I'm like, Uh, (laughs) we can tell our own stories but we are kept out so as actors or writers it's very hard to get into this system even though those stories are so popular at the moment but they are apparently only popular when white people do this Mm. (laughs) so yeah so some have initiated an open letter asking for structural change or just addressing them and that was a very powerful moment I felt that because then people of the Asian community in Germany, they came together, like in a loose context, there was no conference or something, not yet, but at events where we see each other anyway. And everyone had their own story, basically, about telling someone something and uh, losing it and not being credited for it. Yeah. We were all not just, and also I have my stories with it, also with theater pieces. And we are all just not open about this or pointing our fingers on specific people or theater houses because we're all not in the place yet where we can do this Mm. it's just too risky if one of if let's say an actor or something they say well (laughs) i've told my story so often and i didn't even get the job to play for example um let's keep this anonymous um and they become public, then they would get all the racist backlash. And it's clear to most Asian people working in this culture industry that they cannot really afford um, to be very vocal about what they think and do simply because it's so precarious. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But I think there was a momentum because many um, houses got interested in it and also asked for the... Houses? um, theater houses oh, okay, or okay. the bigger yeah, yeah. I don't know how to call this <laughs> yeah yeah I guess so I just we say houses in German <laughs> what do we call them I have mm. no idea though I don't work in the industry institutions let's yeah sure institutions. let's do institutions <laughs> that sounds better mm, and they also asked us from Rise and Shine for interviews and um, yeah there was this big interest and also a disbelief but there are people that I feel who got it and now we just have to wait and see if there's really going to be some change or everyone is just like ah okay that's sad that this happens but let's just move on (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, i'm curious i mean i the thing that fascinated me about it was how quickly the information spreads Mm. like also as someone who doesn't i mean like me looking in as an american but then like being part of these Facebook groups. So I, th- I read about it mostly, I think, in a combination of Corientation and Dam. 
which are these two Asian diasporic Facebook groups. But then like, even if it was written in German, Facebook would translate it for me. Mm. And so I would have very, I mean, obviously they weren't perfect translations, but I would have quite, I had an easy time following what was going on mm. within the discussions. And I thought it was so interesting that I didn't even, I didn't see the piece. I didn't know the piece. I But I was able to understand the situation that was going on from what seemed like a perspective that I shouldn't be understanding, mm. you know? You know, I'm also fascinated. I was also fascinated because I think there was one person who raised the issue in the night. I don't know, some night. Okay. And the next day in the morning, another person said we should do something. And then there was just, was just basically a group of people who jumped on it, wrote this letter, translated it, printed it, did a little flash mob in front of the theater in Berlin and spread the whole thing online. This was all within one day, not done by a specific activist group that has ever worked together, as far as I can tell. But um, since the anger and frustration is so big, I think, and since everyone has a history with it, everyone just got it. You, you didn't have to be an organized group to, to do something. I think everyone just contributed whatever they had. Would it be writing skills or time or a printer or a social media audience? They just did. And then it's just spread within one day so far and got into all, uh, into even the biggest radio stations nationwide. Oh, really? Um, yeah. It was Deutschlandfunk, WDR. This was amazing. And I thought about a poet that I talked to lately, Musa Ogbonga. He's a black British person. And when he came to um, Germany, into the black community, he said, this is like no comparison to the UK because the activists here are so well organized without even being organized. In Germany. Mm -hmm. Especially in Berlin. Hmm. And his explanation was that the situation here must be so bad already that just the activists got very professional at doing what they do. Um, but people outside of Germany just don't understand many of it because German is just a language that nobody speaks. Yeah. Mm. And also because, so the first thing is um, if sufferance is very high, then um, maybe you just get organized a bit better or you just do things better or also, people here are so well qualified. I, I thought about this letter like, wow, it's like a professional campaign group. But I I know a few of the people. and They're not a professional campaign group. Yeah. They're just very skilled in what they do. So, yeah, I think it's it's really about time to uh, um, for Asian German people to enter the institution, to really get the jobs they deserve, because apparently they don't. They are so skilled. They can do this huge campaign out of nothing basically they're just waiting to get paid and honored and cherished for for everything they can do yeah and not just stand in front of the door and sometimes doing things like this yeah 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 i, I agree <laughs> uh, yeah do you have anything else you want to talk about did i miss I don't think so. That was quite a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. Do you have anything uh, planned for Rice and Shine or any upcoming plugs you want to give? Mm. We're now working on an episode about mental health, which is interesting. It's part two. 
this is a big issue within our communities, the mm -hmm. whole healing thing and talking about uh, mental health and also within the first generation. But long term, I think we are working on getting more inclusive, more stories told, more community events. It's so nice how we have developed. We started as a podcast, but I, would, I wouldn't call ourselves a podcast anymore. Yeah. I would say we're more of a community project. And that's also important to us, how we develop. And we want to develop this even further and maybe also see whether we find more sustainable ways of doing this. Because for now, it's um, we both are journalists and we do this as a side thing, but we don't get paid for it. So maybe we can find solidaric ways of keeping this financially safe, let's say. I, I don't think I'm looking for getting real money, which would be so nice. <laughs> Do some merch, get some PayPal set up, <laughs> Patreon. Yeah, we have Steady. This is the German Patreon. Okay. And it helps. It really helps. Um, so we don't pay everything ourselves like privately anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But the amount of time, I don't even know if we can ever get so much money to, to <laughs> pay back what it's actually worth, what our package Podcast yeah, the, is really worth the time, the time and effort. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't think I'll ever get it back, but yeah, but I don't like to, especially as marginalized um, communities or people, that our work is always for free. I, I feel like it has a value, and for now, the value is the community, and I love this, and also the feedback. But I feel like maybe we should still find a way to not exploit ourselves. <laughs> no, it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah, because you want to do this. It feels right to do this. Yeah, for me uh, it does. For me it's important. For me it's... And, yeah. And it feels so wrong to ask for money also. Yeah, I feel like, yeah. I feel like as soon as it gets popular among white people, then you can start asking for money. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> But I made a conscious effort to not advertise my podcast to, to white folks. Mm. Like I don't uh, actively, you know seek out to tell white artists or friends or community members about the podcast so they find out through facebook mm. or through instagram because instagram says you know, they, through the algorithm they'll discover it but i don't actually like friend people mm. and for me that was a very conscious decision you know i guess mentally to protect myself from trying to appease them and just mm. make it for Yeah, for, I guess for the, the whatever imaginary audience they have that is basically largely not white audience. Yeah, we're pretty much the same. I don't know if we do that consciously, but we, for example, we sometimes speak a bit of Vietnamese. And, um, do people complain? Uh, yeah, and people complain and we're like, <laughs> deal with it, man. You're a monolingual person. That's a very radical thing to do. And just, yeah, we are so used to hear many other languages to adapt to your language. So... You, you can't just stand this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, where can people find you? Oh, we are, if you speak German, <laughs> um, we are on Spotify, on iTunes, basically everywhere where you can have podcasts. We also have a link where you can directly listen to it. It's podigy with, with double E dot IO slash rise and shine. Okay. You can also say that in German if you want. Huh? You can also say that in German. Or if maybe you, you can link it. Or link it, yeah. Oh, no, I'll link it. I'll definitely link it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Uh, cool. Well, thank you, Vanessa. Yeah, thank you for inviting. Yeah. It was a very nice chat. I, I really enjoyed it. Because <laughs> I think it's one of my favorite ones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, Please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.